All right, here we are. I'm back. I like that line too, by the way. Um, I am back. Uh, it's good to be back with you. It's been four weeks of great vacation. It's been a week of studying the scriptures to get ready for preaching for the fall, and it's been a wonderful, wonderful vacation. And I'm glad to be back with you. And you cynics that are out there are thinking, yeah, right. Glad to be back. And I just have a couple of words to say to you cynics out there. Some of you that are thinking, yeah, right, you're just saying that because you're here and we're here. And I will say, well, so you think, you really think I'll miss never setting my alarm clock in the morning over being with you. You think I'll really miss slow, non-rushed mornings over being with you. Do you think I'll really miss sliding down, sliding and screaming down miles and miles of water slides? Having a blast over being with you? Come on, do you think I'll really miss that, that wonderful tug on your line and your, your pole slapping the water and you reel in a redfish 22 inches in the gulf over being with you? I mean, come on. Do you really think I'll miss sitting at the beach doing absolutely nothing. No email, no phones. The hardest toil I have of the day is closing my eyes. <laughs> Over being with you? Do you think I'll miss eating out at places like the Grist Mill and Pat's Place and Abuelos and Freebirds and Las Camalas and Outback? Over being with you? Come on. Do you think I'll miss the long, late nights huddled together as a family with popcorn and drink, watching movies until all hours of the night, over being with you? I would recommend, though, when you do do that, that you don't watch Shark Week when you're at the beach. (laughs) I had to lie so many times that week that I had to confess and repent of all week. Daddy? Do you think sharks are in here? No, honey, no. Sharks really like Corpus Christi. Not Rockport. We're fine. Do you really think I, I miss those fun, romantic, unrushed, recharging days of delighting in the wife of my youth over being with you? Not really. Really, I'm just so glad to be here, but I am. I'm glad our vacation, it's always, it's, it's always an interesting thing. I love resting. Who doesn't love playing? Who doesn't love recreating, recreating? Who doesn't love that stuff? But then there's only so much of it you can take. And I know there's only so much of it that I can take when my wife says, when are you going back to work? <laughs> it's good to be here. Okay, so what's the plan for this fall, y'all? What are we going to do? Here's the plan. While at this particular is a unique time, Waco's a unique place, isn't it? We've got that figured out. Now, what's about to happen in the next couple of weeks is an incredible phenomenon that, that Waco experiences. And it's this migration that begins to happen. And so as people migrate back into Waco, and as the school year gets up, we've got about four weeks. So for four weeks, we're going to wrap up Paul's first missionary journey. 
We've been looking at Acts all last year, but we're going to wrap up the first missionary journey, and then we're going to go time out. And I don't know when we'll get back to the second missionary journey. I don't know when we'll finish the rest of the book. But it's going to happen. It'll happen sometime in the near future. But we're going to take a time out, and then while everybody's back, we're going to start a new series on Genesis 1 through 11. Ooh. I love that. And what we're going to do in the fall, we're going to do Genesis 1 through 11, and then maybe we'll do a second missionary journey because, you know, what we like to do here, what your pastor likes to do here is, is give you Old Testament and New Testament. We're not skipping anything. We're going to get to Leviticus someday. It's going to happen. Every part of Scripture will be preached as long as I'm alive. Okay? Now, we're going to do something Really exciting, too, during the fall. We're going to have these Sunday night specials. There's going to be four of them. We're going to call them scenic side trails in Genesis. And for some reason, some of these scenic side trails have become the show in Genesis. When they're really just scenic side trails, they're not the point of Genesis. But for some reason... They are in a lot of people's minds and a lot of people's hearts. And in fact, for many people, if sometimes a person's faith hangs on it. So we're going to look at these side trails. And the first one's going to start September 14th. And they'll usually probably be, I know our rhythm is like 6.30. Everything's at 6.30, so we'll keep it at 6.30 on Sunday night. And we're going to look at the views of creation, a scenic side trail, not the point. So we'll look at the 24-hour view. We'll look at the framework view. We'll look at the day-age view. And I'll give you my view. Okay? Then we'll look at, a couple weeks later, we'll look at probably when we're around the relationship between Adam and God. And Adam is a representative of the whole human race. Adam and Jesus, the only two people that represent the whole human race. That kind of representation, that kind of relationship is unique. You don't have that kind of relationship with God that represents the whole human race. So that's what we're going to bring up covenant theology. And I can't think of a a less insulting, I'm trying to figure out a title that's not insulting. I mean, covenant theology for dummies. You know what I mean, but it's it kind of has a little bite to it. So we'll try to find something that's a little better than that. And then we're going to look at real Genesis 3. We're going to look at biblical manhood and womanhood, really. Because it's a scenic side trail. It's not the point. Sometimes people make it the point. And the last thing we'll look at is all the flood stuff. And I don't know what, I don't even have a title for that yet. But the flood stuff is really kind of stuffy for a lot of people. So we'll unpack some of the theories. And some of the, quote, scientific, provable, solid evidence that explains, quote, the Bible away. I can't wait for that. So we'll do that. Okay? Now, let's move to our passage at hand. Are you ready? We are going to wrap up the first missionary journey. So where are we? If you look at your bulletin, we're at Acts 14. We're going to look at 8 through 18. And I'm going to start this way. I have a summer habit. Some of you are aware of it. My summer habit is this. First, I look for a really good book for me. It's one of those books that it's got to be a really good book. And what that means for me is it's got to be a really good book and that it's got to give me vision. And it's got to expand my heart. 
And it's got to move me in very real ways towards my relationship with God and revigorate me for the call of ministry for a year. I have a lot of expectations on that book. So first I pray for it. And usually what I'm looking for is I'm looking for a great story. I'm not looking for great systematics. You need both in your life. You need systematics and you need story. You need systematics because systematics explain and dissect and show connections to real important God-saturated ideas. But you also need a story. You need to enter in and experientially you need to taste and see the good, the beautiful, and the true. Not just analyze them. You need to experience them. So I look for a story at this time. And then the second thing I do is I go look for it. It could be a conversation with you. Hey, have you read this? No, tell me about it. Do I feel the burning in my bosom? Nope, I move on. So I want you to know this Presbyterian can be very subjective. Okay? So then I go looking for it. Now what I do is I'll usually I'll go to Barnes & Noble. And I'll scan every title in that store. I'll go to every booth in that store. I'll look at every kiosk in that store. And on this night I did. And I was done and didn't see anything. So I went back to get the kids who were doing the same thing. And I pulled them out and were walking out. And then this flash of a face caught my eye that I recognized. And I turned around and I knew that face on the cover of that book. And I went over to the book, and you know where it was? I missed it. It was at the information kiosk. Somehow I went everywhere but there. And I grab it, and it's Nate Self. He's a local boy from the China Spring Crawford area. And I recognized that face because I read a book three years ago called Robert's Ridge. And this was the ranger that led the rescue to a seal who literally dropped into the center of Al-Qaeda forces on Takar Gar Mountain. And I grabbed the book and it said two wars. The war on the mountain and the war within Nate. And I said, I've got my book. And that book took me into some tough, true, terrifying, twisted, triumphant stuff. And there's one thing he said in the book that I could not shake. It made me think, and it made me think, and it made me think, and I thought, I'll just read it to you. Here it is. I had died on that mountain. Who I used to be, the man I was before, had died there. With many others. Now, I don't know who I am. Now I want to kill who I had become. And I thought, and I thought, how do you find your way out of a place like that? And as I read the pages, I find out he's a Christian. And he tells you, Now, our passage this morning forces every single one of us sitting in this room to ask a very profound and possibly unsettling question for you. 
And that is, how do you find your way out of unbelief? How do you do that? Again, do we go back to our little talk we had earlier? Okay, flip the switch, pull the rabbit out of the hat, make a decision, harden your will, surrender all, grab that elusive Holy Spirit. How do you do it? How do you do it? How do you find your way out of unbelief? Now, what we're going to do is we're going to answer that question because the passage answers it. But here's what's so phenomenal and it's so incredible. And this passage actually gives you a torch to find your way out. It will place in your hands and in your heart a torch that will burn and you will see where you need to go to get out of that place. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to look at Acts 14, 8 through 18, and verse 9 and 15. If I remember, I'm going to have you read with me. If not, just start reading and I'll I'll figure it out. Okay, verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened, and what that, it's the imperfect tense. It's trying to describe in the past, he's presently listening. So it would go like this. While he was listening to Paul speaking, and why don't you start here. And Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Okay, thank you. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian. Now you're wondering what's happening. They got so excited, they went back to their native language. They all know Latin. They all know Greek. So they're speaking, well, actually, they know Greek at this time. And so they're, all of a sudden they get excited. They go to Lyconium. That's why Paul and Barnabas don't know what they're saying. You kind of figure out, wait, they're not cluing in here what's going on, are they, too well? Because they don't speak Lyconian. All right. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men, they shout. Now, Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes. I mean, I just, I just feel so sorry for Paul. I mean, I'm telling you, you know, Barnabas is called Zeus. He's the chief god. He's Brad Pitt, you know? And then you have Paul called Hermes. You know, Paul probably looked like an ultimate fighter. Stocky, smushed nose, cauliflower ears, cuts on his face, not very attractive, and then there's Brad Pitt. So Apollos gets Zeus, Paul gets Hermes. And when the, let's keep going here. Uh, because he was the chief speaker and the priest of Zeus, so the priest of Zeus is making his way uh, with the temple to the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds. It's probably about there that they get what's going on. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments, rushed into the crowd, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news, that you would turn from these vain, dead, non-living things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. Now, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, even with these words, see what the text is saying? Even with this stuff, this incredible content of who God is, they scarcely restrained the people from offering a sacrifice to them. 
The word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, let's pray. Ask the Lord to bless further hearing of his word and our hearts to it. Oh God, we ask your nearness. We ask you to be present. We ask you to do what we see in this passage. Would you give the torch of faith? We confess we don't have it in ourselves. Faith is a gift. Would you give it? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is the first direct ministry to the unchurched on a large scale. Now, those of you that have been tracking with me in Acts are saying, come on, Jeff, no, this is the first missionary journey. Remember, the first missionary journey marked the first direct ministry to the unchurched. Remember? I mean, in in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power, you'll be my witnesses. First sphere, Jerusalem. Second sphere, Judea and Samaria. Third sphere, what? The nations, the Gentiles, the unbelievers. True. But if you'll notice, in the first missionary journey up until this point, Paul goes to the religious people first. And the un- or irreligious people are listening in. Lots of them. Yes, there are lots of them, but they're listening in from the outside. Paul goes to the synagogues first in every one of these places he's gone to except here. So what we have here is we have, we have a method of going into the synagogue targeting Bible-believing church religious people and unbelieving, irreligious, historically called pagans and nations looking in from the outside. But here, here Paul goes directly to the self-professing, self-confessing unbelievers. I mean, the picture is incredible. Paul's hiking to the very heart of unbelief. I mean, it's just like the movies. It's like journey to the center of the earth in 3D. Paul grabs the torch off the wall, and they head into the winding maze of dark unbelief. It's phenomenal stuff. The scene is also loaded with other kinds of eye candy. What you got here is the visuals in Lystra have shifted. We're used to being in the stuffy synagogue. We're used to being in a, a, a position and a liturgy of the service at that time. But now we've moved into the open mic, Greek style. When I was at, U, when I, when I was at Brown University and I was working in campus ministry there... In the center of the campus, everyone has us commons, right? A student union or a common area. Well, Brown did too. And it had, st- they had this, the student union, and then it would come down these stone steps, and then there would be this stone, large patio area with stone-seated places around there, and then there would be this huge yard, and then there would be buildings and classes all around it, and then living areas would be down on the other side. So... At least, if you're a student, one time during the day, you had to pass through that area going to or from classes, given. Now, what Brown did at that time in the spirit of Berkeley of the 60s and the spirit of the Greeks that we come to find out is that they would have open mic on the patio. And guys would come up in, and gals would come up and preach. And there'd be discussion and debate, students going back and forth, but usually they're pretty tame. 
Every once in a while, they, you know, they get a little energy in there. But every spring, anticipation all over campus would notch it up many couple notches. Because everybody was waiting for the guy who would literally roll in with this big old cross. And he'd roll in with this big old cross. And that should be to everybody, you and me and everyone that's there, first clue, this isn't right. There's a cross on a wagon or rollerblades. Jesus carried his. So he has this cross and he comes in and he calmly sets himself in the center of the mic place. He quietly gets himself situated. And then he starts berating a list of obscenities like a salty sailor. And if you stop to listen, who? I feel for you. Now, when this would happen, my, my confidence in Numbers 22-28 went up a hundredfold every spring. Because unbelievably, this, whatever he did during that time, actually spiked evangelistic increase in Jesus. It was unbelievable. I don't even think he mentioned Jesus, except when he was cursing. And telling everybody what sinners they are and where they're going and calling out their specific sins while they walk by. But you know what 22, Numbers 22, 28 is? You know what that passage is? That's where God used a donkey. I actually like the King James translation better. It's the literal translation of a mule or a donkey. That God uses that. Now, I'm not going to say it because I, I just got back and I don't want letters from you right now. <laughs> and we've got a long year, so there'll be plenty of time for you to send me letters. But God used it. Now what you've got to see is this is the type of scene that Paul and Barnabas walk into. They walk up to the open mic, and it's basically they go, bop, 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 bop. And all of a sudden, a ripple went through all of Lystra. Someone stood up to speak in the comments. Words. People start piling in, sitting, standing, craning their necks, trying to get a good look. It's packed. And there's, there's Paul and Barnabas standing there with their torch. Okay. Here we go. Now, you will never find your way out of unbelief without the torch that Paul and Barnabas are carrying. In other words, you need their torch. I need their torch. What is their torch? If you don't have that torch, you and I will never find our way out of the particular, the very personal paths of unbelief that you have, that have your signature on them, that are designed and made just for you. And you know what they are. You know those dark places. You know that twisting maze. You know what that is for you. You will never find your way out without the torch. So what's the torch? What is it? How do you find your way out? You need the torch. What's the torch? Look at verse 8. We're going to lead 8 through 10. Now at Leicester there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well. What I want you to see is that here's where grammar, God is in the grammar. If you don't like grammar, I feel sorry for you. 
I really do. Honestly. Because you miss stuff like this. This is, this is like color on the page. What's happening here is the tenses are telling it all. It's saying this. What Paul's doing is says, after Paul was staring and looking intently at the man, after Paul looked at him and saw, present tense, there was faith. What we have here is that after Paul looked, after Paul saw, faith was present, he healed him. Now what's going on here is that Paul heals him, and what we have is you've got to be kind of aware of what happens in Jesus' ministry and what happens in the apostolic ministry that we've already seen in Acts. If you somehow start separating physical healing from spiritual healing, you're going to get weird stuff. I'll just tell you. If you separate these two, you've got weird stuff going on. And you're going to have some weird theologies going on. But if you pick up the grammar and the double entendre that's there, the double meaning that's there, what's the double meaning? He had faith to be made well. That word is sozo, Greek, to be saved. Double meaning. When Paul saw that there was faith to be saved or faith to be made well, well, which one is it, Paul? doesn't matter. Because the visible healing is a picture of spiritual healing. The two are united. And what you get here is both are taking place. And so we have Paul speaking, this person hearing, and while this person's hearing, the torch goes on in his heart. Paul looks intently at him because he's an apostle. I can't do that. I mean, I might see out there and see that you, you, know, you kind of do this or you kind of sit back in your seat and I could be thinking, you know, something's going on. God's working, maybe. But Paul, he looks, he sees. Faith is present. Faith to be saved. Faith to be healed. And what happens is, is Paul calls out with the same creative word, that already had been created inwardly, he says it externally, and the person stands up. The person stands up because the person had already stood up spiritually in their hearts. They had already trusted in the grace of God. The kingdom of God breaks in invisibly through the torch of faith being produced in the man's heart And the kingdom of God visibly breaks in so that everyone sees what exactly happened. The kingdom of God broke in. Divine light and life intruded. The floodwaters were pushed back as the land rose. Chaos and corruption pushed aside as new creation came in that place as divine forgiveness and divine acceptance intruded and broke in on this person's life, and you get a picture visibly of what took place invisibly, all because the torch of faith. How do you get out? How do you find your way out of unbelief? By the torch of faith. I know you got objections, so hold them. I'm going to get to them. The torch of faith is how you find your way out of those very um, seductive, those very uh, stimulating academic pursuits of unbelief that you get at school. 
and that you get in some textbooks today. The torch of faith is how you, you, you kind of break hold of that hold on you. That supposedly there's this proven scientific evidence that's going to explain away the existence of God. The Bible is going to explain away Jesus and God's grace. The torch of faith leads you out of that stuff. The torch of faith leads you out of cold and distant Christian relationship with God that you might have this morning. And Christian, it it leads you out of that, that Christian depression and that Christian guilt and that Christian anxiety and that Christian worry that Christians have. The torch of faith leads you out of that stuff. It relieves you out of relational conflict. And in that relational conflict, you know what we do there. We have these self-absorbed sins that we have, these self-absorbed desires, and that's why we sin against each other. And there's conflict in our relationship. And the torch of faith leads you out of that stuff. It not only leads you out of all kinds of things, that maze and twisted turnings of unbelief, but it leads you to the courage that these guys had. I mean, look at the courage of Paul and Barnabas. They walk into the heart of unbelief, don't know a soul. They go to the open mic. And they start opening their mouths and people are everywhere. It's the torch of faith that actually leads you to have open mic night in your own home. Maybe with your own children. Maybe with unbelieving neighbors. It's the torch of faith that gives you the courage to actually get involved in the life of the church. Even though, of course, it's awkward. And it's clumsy and it's goofy when you first start developing relationships and get into a body. It is that. Let's say it is. Is it not for anybody? Of course it is. But it's the torch of faith that gives you the courage to say, you know what, I'm going to get involved. I'm going to figure out how to... Know people and be known by people. It's the torch of faith that teaches you about real community, that we walk with God together. That you can't do it on your own. But only the torch of faith tells you that. So if you're on your own, there's something going on. It's the torch of faith that leads you to embody your faith in God in your home and at your work. Now, what does that mean? Well, we'll look at what that means. I think Genesis is really going to help us. But you embody your faith. In other words, you believe and trust in the grace of God in real time in what you're doing. And what does that look like? And we'll tease that out a little bit. Now, how does the torch of faith do all this? I think Spurgeon gets it right. This is what Spurgeon says. Spurgeon says that that faith is the soul's eyes to see the living God. Faith is the heart's happiness in the living God. Faith is the soul's hands holding tightly to the living God. You see the picture? Faith is the soul's ears hearing the living God. That's how powerful this torch of faith is. Now, objection, objection. I know some of you are objecting. You don't like this answer. I'll be honest, when I was first reading it, I didn't like this answer. Oh, wait a minute. But then, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a preacher and I'm bound to the text, so I've got to preach what it says, whether I like it or agree with it or not. So I thought, well, I'll just turn this into an objection and hide behind everybody else's coattails. Okay, here's the objection. The point of this text is find your way out of unbelief 
by the torch of faith. The objection is you say to yourself, of course it's faith. (laughs) If the problem's unbelief, the opposite's faith. That doesn't help me. Jeff, you're just stating the obvious. You're playing a, a game of antonyms with me. Right? There's unbelief, there's faith. Okay. Okay, I get it. I don't have... I have unbelief, so I need faith. Thank you. So what happens is that's not profound and that's not helpful to me or to you. I mean, how is it supposed to help me? I'm struggling with faith, so have faith. I'm struggling with doubt, so get belief. So if, if, if an unbeliever is struggling, if you're a skeptic and you're struggling with belief in the Bible and beliefs mentioned in the Bible, the answer for you is, believe in the Bible? Believe those beliefs you struggle with? Do you see my problem with this? Do you have this problem? this objection? So if you're a Christian and you have no courage, you have no courage to do an open mic. You don't have courage to even send out an invitation to a dessert or a fellowship. You have no courage. You have little community. You have little love. In fact, what you have a lot of is that you seem to be self-absorbed and pursuing your self-absorption in everything that you do. Okay. And the answer for you is have faith. Get faith. Flick on the torch of faith? I don't have faith. That's my problem. You don't have faith. That's your problem. Now this text, interesting, as you start digging a little more, it's got two answers for you and me to this objection. And we'll wrap up our time looking at these two, two answers to this one objection. You know what the first answer is? You have more faith than you think. Wow. Now, just because, look at the text. We're going to look at verse 11, 12, and 13. But I want you to, re, I want you to hear this, those of us that are objecting to this. We have more faith than we think. Now look, just because Paul and Barnabas go to a place of unbelief, it doesn't mean they went to a place that's faith free. Do you see that? Just because they go to a place that's that's filled with unbelief, it doesn't mean that place is faith free. Verse 11. Words verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying, Lyconium, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul they called Hermes. Do you see what's happening? A miracle takes place. The kingdom of God breaks in invisible reality. So everyone could see what happened invisibly in that man. It's for all eyes to see. Instead of responding in faith in the living God, it didn't mean they stopped exercising their faith. They had faith in something else. Specifically in this text, what is it? Paul, you're Hermes. Barnabas, you're Zeus. And the gods have come down to us in you. 
The priest gets the offering, and they start making a sacrifice. Paul makes it real clear to them when he intervenes and says, Look, what are you doing? He rips his robe. Blasphemy. We're not God. You misinterpreted this. Your faith is in the wrong place. And what he says is he goes, he emphasizes their faith in verse 16. What is he, how does he emphasize it? Look what he says. He calls their faith their own way. I mean, notice what he's saying. He's calling them to turn away from dead, lifeless things to the living God. But what he doesn't say is, but while you're not trusting in the living God, you're not just in neutral. You're pursuing your own way. You've got faith. Here's the point. Hidden, hidden in every unbelief and in every doubt is solid faith in something. That's the point. You are not faith-free. No one is. Every single one of us right now are exercising faith in someone or something. You have more faith I have more faith than I believe. So here I'm going to push us a little bit. It might be a little uncomfortable, and here's the uncomfortableness. Doubt and unbelief in God, His Word, and His Son means we've got more faith somewhere else. That means we could have more faith in science. And what that means is, is we, have, we have faith in science that we actually think that science is the only collector and gatherer of truth. That is a strong faith. Or we have faith in science in this way, that science is the infallible collector and gatherer of truth. Verifiably so. That's a strong faith. We might have faith, solid faith, an absolute faith, that there is no solid, absolute truth. We might have solid, absolute belief in a love relationship, in our reputation, that our sins actually love us and care for us and have our best in mind. That's a, that's a strong faith. We might have the solid belief that I cannot believe in a God who believes in hell. That's a solid faith. Do you see what happens? In every unbelief and in every doubt is solid faith in something. No one's faith free. No one. Second answer is this. Remember, the point of the text is... How do you find, if in question form, it's how do you find your way out of unbelief? Answer by the torch of faith. So you find, find your way out of unbelief by or through the torch of faith. Now, the second answer to the objection, I just don't get that, is this. We need to listen more. First is we have more faith than we know about or that we believe we have. And the second is we need to listen more. Look at verses 8 and 9. Look what happens. Now the man was sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and never walked. He was listening to Paul speaking. And while he was listening to Paul speaking, faith came to be. If Paul was writing his systematics instead of, instead of being involved in Luke's story... Paul would write it this way, and he did in Romans 
10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the words of Christ. We need to listen more. Now, the crippled man, in one sense, listened his way out of unbelief. See how that happened? He's listening to Paul speak. He's listening to the apostolic word. He's listening. He's listening. And while he's listening, faith strikes his heart. Faith burns in his heart. And he begins to actually trust in the living God. And Paul sees that and says, well, it's there. I might as well make it visible to everybody. Stand up! That's how it happened. Now, don't you want to know what he heard? Oh, here it comes. The passage gives you a torch. The torch is in what he heard. What we know, it probably had some of the stuff we've seen in earlier sermons of Paul, like in Acts 13, right? Probably he said some stuff there. But certainly, certainly, it was good news. Look at verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? His answer is twofold. We're only men. And then his second answer is, and we bring you good news. Paul's answer to their unbelief as they see what's taking place, he says, we're only men, and we bring you good news. So whatever this man heard, it had to be good news. So the key question is, what would be good news to an unbelieving heart? What would be good news to a doubter? What would be good news to a struggler? What would be good news to someone who's realizing that their solid belief in faith, that their solid belief in science is still only a faith claim? What would be good news to someone who trusts in a love relationship for fundamental and foundational life and happiness and that relationship ends? What would be good news to someone who's defined their existence and has built their life and has found themselves and defined themselves by their career success? And now that they're 50, they realize, I didn't obtain what I thought I was going to be and what I thought I was going to do and be the success that I thought was going to happen to be me. What would be good news to that person? What would be good news to you who struggle with anxiety and stress and fear this morning? What would be good news to you? Remember what Nate Self said? I died on that mountain. Who I used to be, the man I was before, had died there with many others. Now, I don't even know, I didn't even know who I was. Now I wanted to kill the man who I became. Do you know what got him out? Do you know what he heard? He heard it in sermons, after sermons, after sermons, that he starts mentioning in his book. And then what he heard became story in some conversations. In other words, last year he was at a reunion with his rangers. This is five years earlier he was on that mountain, and it was five years of a war within, struggling to find God, struggling to find himself, wanting to kill the man he had become. I'll let you listen to what he says, got him out. We laughed together. We ate together. We remembered. 
I could tell they loved me by the way they looked at me. I had never quite seen it before, but I knew it right away. It was unconditional love. It was the same way that Julie, which was his Baylor grad wife, looked at me. It was the way my kids looked at me. And that's when I felt the tug that it's the same way God looks at me. Even when I walked away from him. That's what that crippled heard. That's what unbelieving hearts need to hear. That's good news. I mean, I want you to look at verse 11, because I have to say it, and we are really going over here, but that's the way it goes with me. Look at verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Do you know what's so sad about that statement? The people of Lystra actually believe their gods love them and care for them and are near them. That's why they said, they've come down to us. They love us. Science doesn't love you, care for you. It's not near you. Your reputation and your sin and a love relationship and comfort and ease do not love you and care for you and they are not near you. They will punish you. Those gods do not love you. But there is one who did come down to unbelievers, doubters, strugglers, and become like you. And in doing so, he showed all the world and he shows you that he loves you. And that he came and lived a life to counteract your doubts and your unbelief and your failings and your sins. He lived a perfect life. That's why he came down to be with doubters. And then he died a punishing death because the penalty of ultimately all rejection of God and his goodness, all doubt and unbelief that he's good and he's great and that he made the heavens and the earth and that even while he made the heavens and the earth, he sustains it right now. And the text says, even the gladness you experience now, even the joy of your food demonstrates his common grace and love for you. And so he dies for us. And then he rose from the dead so that the kingdom of God actually can break in now upon you. And you can have divine acceptance and you can have peace with God and you can have his Holy Spirit with you and you can have forgiveness and you can have a relationship with him and you can experience his nearness and his love and his care for you. So, brothers and sisters, what an incredible gift this text gives us. The way you find your way out is by the near love of a God who became man for you. Amen.